have, the, uh, have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind us in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would absolutely adore for you to take one of those home. The reason why is because we value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to, to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. We believe it's the authority that everything that we're talking about of this morning of any substance is based on and flows out of. We believe it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his people and as his creation. And so um, to, to take our, the Bible out from under that seat and take it home with you and start reading it is a, is a win for us. We, we believe God will do something big with it. Um, it's February now. Did you know it's February? Um, I, does it seem like January just like disappeared? Okay, so we're on the same page with that. Um, it's February now, and uh, we are just kind of rolling along through a series uh, on the book of Ephesians. We actually started the series back in July, um, and so uh, we are getting closer and closer to the end. Uh, some of y'all may be thinking the light at the end of the tunnel, but whatever. Um, we're, gonna, we're having a good time with it. And so we're going to finish this up uh, just before Easter, and it's going to be a good time unless you know, God sends a major snowstorm and we have to shut it down for a week or so. Um, but uh, we have been walking through a series that we're calling To the Saints. And uh, the, the reason for that is because the letter of Ephesians is addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus. Ephesus is a first uh, century city uh, in what's now Turkey. Um, coastal city. It was a big deal uh, back in the first century. It was a major hub for culture and economics and, and religion and all these kinds of things. And one of the seven wonders in the ancient world, the temple of Artemis, was in the city of Ephesus. And so um, Ephesus was a massive deal during that part of history. And so uh, Paul writes a letter to Christians who are in that city. He calls them saints. And a saint is nothing more for Paul than somebody who's been declared holy. That's literally what the word saint means. And so someone who has been declared holy. And so he writes a letter to all the Christians in Ephesus. And uh, he has been just unpacking some massive things. God is, uh, he's been unpacking things that, uh, about who God is and, and what he has done to reconcile us to himself and redeem a people for himself. And, and, and at the back half of the letter that we've been talking about the last few months, Paul begins to flesh out for us what it means to live in response to the great things that God has done. Right? So he spends the first half of the letter saying, God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this. And in the back half of the letter, he starts, because God has done these things, this is how we ought to live. Right? This is how we ought to walk. And so uh, we've been in chapter 5 for a couple weeks now. And we've been talking about the call in verses 1 and 2 to love like Jesus loves. That's a big deal. Right? We talked a lot about this. We, we've been saying for the last few weeks that to love like Jesus loves is a, is a monumental task. Because my definition of love and Jesus' definition of love aren't, aren't at all the same. I, I tend to attach the word love to, to people and things that some, somehow please me or satisfy me. And if, and if those things stop pleasing me in some way, my heart has this tendency to, to immediately start looking for something or someone else that will give me what I want, right? Are you, are you that much different than me or are we all, are we all kind of in the same boat on that? But Jesus' definition of love is completely and utterly different. Jesus' definition of love cannot be used as a mere emotion. It certainly can't be used as an emotion that, that's uh, affected by the circumstances around it. For Jesus, love is an act of service. And, and it's so great an act of service that he actually laid his own life down for those who had absolutely no business knowing him. Like, like I don't use the word love for people I would put in the category of enemy. Jesus, though didn't just lay down his life for his friends, he laid down his life for those he currently called enemies. 
And so my definition of love and Jesus' definition of love are worlds apart. The love of Jesus is not affected by circumstances because it's not an emotional response to anything. And so last week we began to dig a little deeper. Paul starts to give us some practical ideas of what it looks like to, to walk in this kind of love, right? We talked about distancing ourselves from sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and crude talk and all those kinds of things because those things are fundamental different those things are fundamentally different than an, an a self an unselfish, others focused kind of love. They're self-serving, they're 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 intrinsically me-focused. We talked about what it means to walk as children of the light and to speak honestly about sin and what that leads to. We also talked about how massive that task is, right? Because my heart wants to play the I told you so game. My heart wants to win the argument. We didn't say boat on that one too? But Jesus doesn't play games like that. So you all ready to take another step into Ephesians? Look at verse 14 again. Chapter 5, verse 14. Let's look at the back half. Start with the, the new paragraph. There. It says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we looked at this verse last week, and we wrapped things up by, by talking about how uh, that the call on our lives to pursue holiness, the call on our lives to walk in obedience to God, is not actually about us at all. That, that it's something that is completely and utterly not about us. It's actually about God's glory somehow. That, that when he calls us to walk in holiness, when he calls us to walk in this do or that don't, it's, it's actually about showing off the glory of Jesus. It's about reflecting his name and his goodness. The ultimate goal of our life of holiness, of walking in the way that God has called us to walk, is not to point to ourselves at all, but to point to the goodness of God and his gospel. So when we walk as, we're, as we've been called to walk, other people see God's character and other people see his work in our lives. And Paul says here that Christ's glory shines on us. And when Christ's glory shines on us, the gospel goes forward. And then in verse 15, Paul takes another step here. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are what? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So if you haven't figured out by now, uh, to walk is just another way of saying to live, right? Apparently, Paul likes to use the word walk instead of live. It seems like live would be a lot simpler, but he says, hey, walk carefully. Look carefully how you walk. The Greek word for walk there is the word akrobos, or not walk, for careful. The Greek word for careful there is the word akrobos. Everybody say akrobos. You're good little Greek scholars, right? Acrobos. It means intentional or deliberate. Some people like to translate that word as correctly, like precise. So what's Paul saying here? Just pay attention to how you live. Be intentional with how you live your life. See correctly and be on purpose with how you walk through this life. For every one of us, 
there are things in our life that we're very, very intentional about, right? Just absolutely deliberate about. Um, we, we focus on and we want to see it be successful. And so we pour a lot of time and energy and attention into those things. Uh, for some people, like, like it, it's your job, right? Uh, you, you really want to be good at your job. You want to be absolutely great at your job. So you give a lot of time and attention to it. Or, or maybe for some people, it's, it's uh, raising your kids. Or maybe for others, it's politics. Or, or maybe it's uh, the hobby that you're really into, right? There, there are things in this life that we can all point to and say, yeah, I am very, very intentional about that. And your life backs it up, right? But then there are also things in your life that you're less intentional about, right? Maybe it's grocery shopping. Anybody... Anybody really get into the grocery shopping? Okay. Hang out with John, probably have a good time at the store. All right. But there are things that we're less intentional about, right? Whether it's grocery shopping, or maybe it's the hobby, or maybe it's politics. Like, like how many of y'all avoided the State of the Union address the, the other day, right? All right? Maybe for some of you, it's your job. You're going to get fired, but I'm not judging you. There are things that we're incredibly intentional about, and then there's things that we're not so intentional about. And while there may be some play and some, some give and take in a room this size, while, while not everybody would have the, exactly the same list, for the most part, it's kind of the same, right? We all kind of naturally get that there are things that are really important, and then there are things that are less important. And these things kind of naturally work themselves out into a rhythm, don't they? We, we can point to these these moments of intentionality in our lives. And we can point to these moments of, of rest. And so we're intentional and we rest. And then we're intentional and we rest. And for 99% of things in this world, that's exactly the type of rhythm that you want. But in Ephesians, 15, or Ephesians 5, verse 15, Paul says that when it comes to being sacrificially loving, when it comes to being a reflection of, of Jesus' glory, that we don't have days off. We don't have less important or less intentional moments. We don't have rhythms of rest on this one. We're always on the clock. Why? He told us in verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are The, the tense that Paul's using there, the thing that, that he's trying to allude to is the fact that this world has fallen apart around us. Another way of saying that is that we're running out of time here. We don't have time to waste, so pay attention to what message you're sending through the way that you live. He says we ought to be making the best use of our time. Paul's instructions here are for us to be deliberate with how we walk through even the little decisions in our everyday life. Not in a way that debilitates us, but in a way that looks honestly and practically at how those things testify to who God is and what he's declared us to be. Your life doesn't exist in a vacuum. Folks are watching you. And I know most people say that with a weird tinfoil hat on their head. But folks are watching you, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's the coworker who knows you go to church. Maybe it's the guy in the same aisle as you in the grocery store who saw you get out of the car with the ichthys fish on the back of it. Maybe it's just your spouse and your kids, but folks are watching you. And Paul here says that a failure to be intentional isn't just sending a mixed message. It's also costly. I'm not saying that God wants you to choose a hot coffee over iced coffee at Dunkin' Donuts tomorrow. But how you talk to the person on the other side of the counter 
That matters. I'm just kidding. Iced coffee's a sin. <laughs> Won't be in heaven. How you walk matters. Even the little things, the little moments that we don't pay attention to, Paul says, hey, 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 you're on the clock here. We don't have off days. We don't have off moments. A lack of intentionality on this stuff is costly because we're surrounded by a world that's falling apart and by people who literally don't know God. Which means that this stuff actually has eternal ramifications attached to it. We said last week that this ain't a game. It hasn't become a game in the last seven days. We're seven days closer to running out the clock. Does this mean that every single conversation you have with someone needs to be a detailed gospel presentation? No. But, you know, maybe. Maybe if we, we really do understand the stakes here and we really do care about that person standing in front of us, we'll eventually get around to pulling the trigger, right? We have to be intentional about this. And I can be just as guilty as anybody else in this room. Because I've been thinking through this stuff and getting ready to preach this stuff, I promise you, I can count more times in my life that I've failed on this than you can. I can be just as guilty. We said a few weeks ago that we're calling our church to be more intentional about speaking the gospel to friends and families, neighbors, whoever you got. Uh, There are good ways and bad ways to spur people on. There are positive ways and negative ways to spur people on. Paul here in Ephesians 5 tells us, hey, hey, we're running out of time here. You better get a move on. Paul here uses the negative sense, but it's still appropriate. He says, we don't have time to waste. Read verse 17 again. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Get her butts in the game. Verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so Southern Baptists have historically struggled uh, with the alcohol issue. Um, so I want to tread carefully, but I also want to speak pretty clearly to this. Um, regardless of what your personal convictions are uh, concerning alcohol, and it's okay for you to have them, um, I'm not the anti-alcohol guy, and I have zero reason to believe that the Apostle Paul is either. All right? um, many of you probably land the exact same place that I do on this issue, but even if you can't articulate it, let me just try to give you some words for it. Uh, the Bible gives what we would call a neutral view of alcohol, uh, meaning that alcohol is neither good or bad, it's, it's how it's used and seen. Right? And so, uh, like any other thing that God has created and given to us, it can either be used in a way that makes much of God and celebrates God and those kinds of things, or it can be used in a way that makes much of us and celebrates us. Right? And so the second attitude in action, the Bible calls that idolatry. Right? So it has hard words for the second action, but alcohol in and of itself is not the problem. Right? But here's the thing Paul is not talking about alcohol here, he's talking about drunkenness. And the Bible's not neutral on that. The Bible very clearly calls that sin. But why? Like, can we just play the four-year-old in the back of the car for a second? Why? I have zero experience to pull that from. But why? What? 
Why is drunkenness a problem? Why would drunkenness be a sin? So one of the things I desperately want to teach you in whatever time that God gives me to be your pastor here, like, like I've got a long list of things, like a really long list of things, that after whatever season God gives me, I want to be able to look back and say, oh yeah, they, got, they understand that well, right? And so one of the things, really maybe even the top thing, third, I don't know, one of the things I desperately want you to know before God takes me somewhere else, whether that be to heaven or whatever else, I don't know, is that God's commands on our life are not arbitrary. They don't just come out of nowhere. He's not some cosmic killjoy looking to rain on our parade. God's commands serve a purpose. Our God is not a because I said so God. I am a because I said so parent. But our God is not a because I said so God. We could spend weeks talking about this, but let me just give you a rundown. For starters, God's commands are a reflection of his own perfect character. Anything he has commanded of us, he already exists in perfection on. So like, like, let me give you an example. When God says be loving, it's because he is literally the greatest embodiment of love the universe will ever know. When God commands us to, to show compassion, be compassionate, it's because he is literally the perfection of compassion. And so his commands on our life aren't just a, uh, this is what I want you to be, don't look at me, just do what I say. They're about lining us up with his character. Secondly, we can point to the reality that God's commands shape us into what is actually most fulfilling for us in this world. Like, regardless of what you think about whether or not Ten Commandments statues ought to be on courthouse lawns, like, no one's going to argue that there's like this big ethical dilemma of what they actually command us to do. Right? They're, fifth, they're kindergarten level morality. Like, most of them are just, don't take other people's stuff. Don't hurt other people. Don't lie, right? Like, anybody want to go out on the limb and say that this world is a better place if we all just take everybody's stuff all the time? It's not this major ethical question. It's basic morality. The world works better. Evil is withheld and our lives and society flourish when we are obedient to God's commands. It's not a promise that if we do this, God's going to bless. But it, life tends to go better when we do what God says. It's almost like he's smarter than us, right? <laughs> God's commands are about lining us up with, who, with, with the way the world works best. Thirdly, like we've been talking about for the back half of this series, his commands are about lining us up with who he's already joyfully declared us to be. Saints. So whenever our God rolls out a do or a don't in the scriptures, it's not because he's trying to steal our joy, it's because he's magnifying our joy. So does that paradigm hold up to the drunkenness question? Like, forget about theoretical theology for a second. Let's put some meat on the bones. Like, let's apply this. God said, this is bad. Is that actually for our good? Yeah. Drunkenness, by definition, means that you're not in control of you. The alcohol is in control of you. So if you're inebriated, what are you not doing in that moment? First of all, you're not putting the character of God on display. God is never not in control. 
But secondly, and, and most importantly because of our text this morning, neither are you making the best use of your time in these shortened and evil days. This, te- this verse, verse 18, is not stand by itself. It's in the middle of a paragraph. Which means it's connected to the thoughts coming before and after, right? Hermeneutically, for those who know, understand what that word means, it means that we have to connect it to the propositions before and after this verse. Which means this is not an island of itself. This is connected to the thoughts. So what's Paul's larger context in this paragraph? It's about wasting time. It's about preaching the gospel well. Paul's larger context is saying that we need to be light in a dark place in this moment. And so he's on the alcohol issue, on the drunkenness issue, he's saying you're not maximizing gospel opportunities for yourself. You're wasting your time by serving yourself. Just like the stuff we talked about last week, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, crude talk, drunkenness is the opposite of sacrificial love. It's intrinsically self-serving. Does that mean that, that the Christian should never have fun doing this thing or that thing or fill in the blank thing? No, the gospel is oftentimes proclaimed best in those moments. But the gospel is never proclaimed well in the self-serving moment. So Paul says, look carefully how you walk. Pay attention to this. There's intentionality that's needed here. So what do we fill ourselves with that runs us in the other direction? In the sacrificially loving direction. Did Paul already tell us? Paul already told us. Verse 16 or 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Paul tells us that the Spirit of God, to be filled with the Spirit by definition, means that you're not in control of you. God is in control of you. Now, some people take this text to mean that being filled in the way that Pentecostals would use the word, use that phrase. I don't think, I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. I think, he's, I think he's more likely talking about character and worldview. The same way he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He's not talking about speaking in some unknown language or doing whatever else. I don't know. Uh, he's talking about people whose salvation is evident because their lives are bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? He says, be filled with the Spirit. And in that moment, instead of being self-serving, we'll be sacrificially loving. And this is most surely the part of our time this morning that we have to remind ourselves that we are operating in the context of therefore. Why? Because I can't tell the Spirit to do anything. I'm not the boss in this relationship. If you haven't been here, we've been saying that we need to remind ourselves over and over and over again that these commands to do come way after, chronologically after, all of Jesus' dones. That we can't earn anything. We're not even putting the finishing touches on stuff that Jesus got us 99% of the way there on. We are reconciled to him because of his finished work on the cross to pay the debt of our sin with nothing added to it or subtracted from it. But Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And that's something that he's got to handle for me because I'm not the boss in this relationship, right? I can't tell the Spirit what to do. We've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old right now. At the moment, it's kind of cute when they try to tell me what to do. (laughs) 
The older and older they get, the less cute it gets. The more annoying it gets. We have lots of conversations with our four-year-old. Livy, you're not the boss here. Like, it's cute when kids do it. We laugh, but my own heart is just as guilty. How about yours? I have a tendency to try to, to make this happen or make that happen. I can't make the Holy Spirit do anything. He's the boss. But he's also good. And he loves me. And filling me with more and more of himself is exactly the type of thing that he enjoys doing. So my job is to get the heck out of the way. To submit to him and be changed by him. To let him make me into what he's already joyfully declared me to be. But do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give, uh, verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in the process of fleshing out for us what it means to be sacrificially loving and therefore putting the glory of God on display and therefore needing to be filled with the Spirit in order to do that, Paul tells us that there are a couple of things that kind of naturally happen uh, in this process. And we need to remember as we read these that Paul hasn't addressed this letter to individuals. He's addressed this letter to a collection of individuals called a church. And so all of these things that are, that are being fleshed out here have community-level implications, right? And so Paul says that as we are trying our best to love like Jesus loves, put his glory on display, do all the things that God has commanded us to do, there are a couple of things that kind of naturally flow out of this. One is that we will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. A church that has been, that is full of people whose hearts have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ will naturally be a singing church. It just comes out of them. I mean, think about that for a second. We sing about the things that most move us. It's just kind of wired into our DNA. God created us in this way that we just kind of naturally, kind of as a knee-jerk reaction, sing about the things that most move our hearts. This is why half of every song in the universe has, is, that's ever been written is some type of dumb love song. Like, right? This is why the coolest songs that you know are some type of protest song. We, it has been created in us to express ourselves through music. Paul says that when we're filled with the Spirit of God, we will be a singing church. We will address one another in song. How are you doing today? <laughs> it's so nice to see you in church this morning. No, that's not what he's talking about. It'd be weird if this was a musical, right? <laughs> it is a pretty good indicator, though. Like, as a guy who's been responsible sometimes for walking into churches who don't know who I am and giving an assessment to people of how things are going there, 
it is a pretty solid indicator of the spiritual health of a church to see how they handle singing together. It's a pretty solid assessment because when you're moved by God, it comes out of you. That doesn't for a second, though, mean the church with the best music program. We don't have the best music program. I love you, JB, but yeah. <laughs> you can probably find a church down the road from here that does music way better than us. Throw way more money, a lot more talent at it. This doesn't mean the church with the best music program. But drop yourself in the middle of a room full of people who are unloading themselves in joy. You'll know. Neither style nor aptitude matter in that moment. You'll know. Paul says that we'll address one another in song. Healthy churches that love one another sacrificially will naturally be singing churches. But he mentions the second thing. A second thing that being filled with the Spirit of God affects in the context of church community. He says that we will submit to one another out of reverence for who? For Christ, for Jesus. An others-focused, self-sacrificing heart attitude will naturally flesh itself out in mutual submission. You look for ways to submit to one another. It creates a culture where I, I'm trying to outdo you in showing love and you're trying to outdo me in showing love. It creates a culture where we're looking to outdo one another in meeting the needs of the beloved. And this is one of the greatest testimonies coming out of the church to a lost world. To see God's people operate in a way that's completely different than anything they've ever experienced before. Like you want to give them a picture of a kingdom to come? That's where it's most clearly seen. Mutual submission does not exist where the gospel of Jesus Christ is not found. You know, I mean, this is literally the exact opposite of a Darwinian worldview. To a belief in a value system that, that thinks that we advance because the smartest or the strongest or the fastest got to the good stuff first. Jesus steps onto the scene and turns the world upside down and says, baloney. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. Paul assumes here that Jesus is a God who turns the world upside down, and I think he's dead right. And because we revere Jesus, because we want to look like our king, we submit to one another like he calls us to. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. You do that by taking the next step to walk in love like Jesus loves us. Those steps affect things between you and your neighbor, and it affects things between you and the rest of your, your church family. And so it fleshes out a bunch of stuff. But maybe a question you can answer this morning is, how are you proclaiming the gospel through your actions? Is it even something that's ever been on your radar? Maybe you've failed to walk in some of the things that Paul calls us to this morning. I got you, me too. It's a good day to repent and take the next step. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. 
I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. You can respond this morning by coming to meet the one who declares people holy. Not because they've got it all figured out. That's not even close to true. But because he woke them up to the reality that they very much do not have it figured out. So they place their hope and trust in him. They've repented of their sin and come to him as Lord. And today is a good day for you to take the next step of following Jesus too. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk with you and pray with you. Help you figure out what that next step looks like. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. Let's pray. God, you are good. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who shows us what love is. God, I I confess that my life is oftentimes on my best day just oblivious to what you're doing around me opportunities that you're giving me to to speak the gospel and represent you well. On my worst days, it's all about me. God, we anticipate a kingdom to come where you will be the star of the show. And the clock is running out. Would you give us a holy sense of urgency? God, would you... Help us to see the things in our lives and our actions and our daily routine that are inconsistent with who you've called us to be. God, would you help us each repent this morning and take the next step of of walking deeply with you? God, for people in in here who, who don't know you today, would you draw them to yourself? Would you would you open hearts to know you today? As we sing, would you Embody the praise of your people. Everything and nothing less. Lord, we need you. Our lives are yours. In your name we pray. Amen.